Okay. We might, uh, it's just on 12.30 and I think um, I've been told the webinar's um, up and running so we might uh, make a start. Uh, so welcome today to this um, insight session. Uh, this has um, uh, been organised by the Leadership and Career Development um, Subcommittee. Uh, we, um, our objective of our committee is to um, promote the uh, soft skills and non-technical skills that make um, our members more valuable in business, as actuaries, um, and, and just in the community. So we, um, we when, and when we talk about leadership skills, we're uh, thinking about thought leadership as well as leadership as of people as teams. So it's, we're thinking it's skills that are relevant to make our members more valuable, not just people who want to manage teams. Uh, so part of our the committee's responsibility is to raise awareness of what we mean by those uh, technical and soft skills and to uh, um, encourage our members to be proactive in thinking about them in their career progression. So today we've uh, got two renowned actuaries, Blair Nichols and Anthony Lau, um, to uh, help share their journey, give us a bit of insight into some of the challenges they've felt as um, faced along the way as leaders and uh, hopefully some tips. So I'll just give you a bit of uh, background on both of them. I've got their bios here. So Blair is currently working on a startup venture um, in distribution for health and motor insurance. Um, this venture expects to start selling insurance uh, later this year. In his previous role, Blair was responsible for Berkshire Hathaway Reinsurance in Australia, New Zealand and Southeast Asia. Blair has also, also started Berkshire Hathaway Specialty Insurance in Australia, selling both specialty lines and personal lines. The personal lines operation was sold to IAG in June 2015. Prior to this position in Berkshire, Blair was the Chief, Chief Actuarial Officer and Head of Reinsurance for the QBE Insurance Group. He ran the global reinsurance programs, business planning process, capital modelling and was involved in many of the acquisitions completed by QBE. Blair joined QBE in 94 and held various senior management roles. Anthony is the CEO at Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia, a broad-based community organisation and the peak national body for prostate cancer in Australia, dedicated to reducing the impacts of prostate cancer on Australian men, their partners and families recognising the diversity of the Australian community. He's also the Adjunct Associate Professor at the Menzies Health Institute, um, Queensland, Griffith University, Non-Executive Director at Ensemble Offspring and a member of the Actuaries Institute Leadership and Career Development and Public Policy Council Committees. Prior to, prior to joining the um, Prostate Cancer Foundation, Anthony was the Chief Operating Officer at the National Breast Cancer Foundation, the leading community-funded organisation in Australia, raising money for research into the prevention, detection and treatment of breast cancer. Anthony has held senior executive positions in the financial services industry in Australia, the US and UK, ultimately becoming the Executive Director and Asia-Pacific Business Group Leader at Mercer Wealth Solutions. Anthony is a fellow of the Institute of Actuaries and a fellow of the Institute of Actuaries of London. Sorry, that's of Australia and London. Uh, he holds a PhD in Mathematical Physics from the University of Southampton and a Bachelor of Arts, Master of Arts and Master of Mathematics from the University of Cambridge. Lots of study by the sounds of it. <laughs> so uh, just join me in welcoming um, Anthony and Blair. Um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to asking you a couple of questions and picking your brains. Um, so to start off, um, perhaps uh, I could get both of you, maybe starting with you Blair, just to give us a uh, brief uh, walk through uh, your leadership journey. Um, um, yeah, that'd be a pleasure. Um, if I go back a bit in time and I can give you the direction I've been through and where I think it's made a difference and where I've learnt different things as far as leadership goes. I probably started, I started at QBE in um, 94, before that I was in consulting, as a consulting actuary 
Um, originally in QBE, it was quite a small company in 94, um, and there was many insurance companies in Australia. Uh, I actually started out doing um, personal lines pricing at that stage, which was a little bit unusual. There wasn't many actuaries involved in doing personal lines pricing in insurance companies. And generally not many actuaries actually involved in general insurance companies. Most of them were involved in consulting at that stage in the general insurance industry. Um, the, the thing which I think initially in my career made the biggest difference was um, how, how I put it or think about it is trying to be relentlessly enthusiastic about things and getting into things and not, not letting go of things um, and, and trying to be positive about things. Uh, and that's probably initially a really important point to, to do. Um, a lot of actuarial trainings about being trying to figure out where the problems are um, and figure out solutions to, to issues. And sometimes we can get very focused on um, what the problems are and not, certain, not necessarily trying to figure out solutions and is to, to issues, etc. So that, to me, I always enjoyed things about making change and um, Im improving on things, and that, that's what I enjoyed about roles. So I, I really tried to push that side of things about make, making, making positive changes to the business to make it better and trying to identify areas in the business um, where I could see that we could probably make a change, of which there was lots available, and there always is lots available where you can make sort of a positive change in the business. So not sort of being the devil's advocate, but being a, a change advocate there. Um, so that figuring out of what you think is going to make the biggest difference to the business and targeting it, and I'll use this word a few times today because I think it's important, just relentlessly looking at it and trying to make sure you achieve that. So having the tenacity there and the, the desire to move that direction. So that, that was sort of my early stages at QBE. Um, being, being QBE and, and the 90s, we looked at a number of acquisitions and things like that. Um, I got involved in a lot of due diligence around acquisitions, etc. And then we made a merger of Australia between QB's Australian Operations and Mercantile Mutual, which I did a lot of work in getting that all together. Um, and uh, to my surprise, after saying this will work really well, they said, OK, go and make it work with, with myself and two other people, um, Terry Ibbotson, who ran it, and a guy, another actually called Mike Goodman, who came from the um, Mercantile Mutual side. Um, which I thought, I mean, it was, it was relatively scary for a relatively young, younger person at that stage because um, you've never been in a position of, uh, hey, you said it's going to work really well now, make it work really well. Um, so that's um, a, a little bit, bit, bit interesting, but the thing to do is grab it a, a, and run with it and have a bit of back yourself to some extent because um, the, the worst you can do ever in any of these types of things is um, lose your job, uh, which, which is not that bad. And you have to be, I mean, any job you're in, I think you have to be not afraid to lose your job. You have to, be, have, to have the confidence yourself to, to back yourself. Um, so that, that was a fairly uh, big stage um, to, to sort through. Um, at that stage, when, when we put the two organisations together, the, the, when we mapped it all out and figured out what we wanted to do, which we wanted to do very quickly, we sort of announced it in April 99. By September 99, we wanted to have it sorted. So we figured out pretty early on in the piece um, that we wanted, we got about, had about 1,000 roles or something like that. Unfortunately, we had about 1,500 people. Um, so that was a fairly traumatic exercise to go through. At the time, I mean, you've got to be able to justify these things to yourself as well um, in, in that it's better to have 1,000 people in a job than 1,500 people in not a job because you're going broke with your expense ratio. So um, it, that, that, that um, did a lot for me as far as developing my leadership and trying to sort things through and realising there's actually no really well-known path to solve all these problems. You don't have to come up with a lot of plans about it all necessarily. You need a macro plan and you need to be able to sort that through in a fairly timely manner by making decisions. And a lot of the time it doesn't actually matter if you, if you choose A or B as far as which direction to go. People just need certainty and somewhere to... Um, some direction to call around and some, some, so that everybody can run the same direction. It's actually more important to make the wrong decision and all run the same way than not make a decision at all and trying to figure out which way to go. The certainty behind that um, is really important. And if you always keep that in mind and everything you're looking at is trying to give 
all the people who, um, who you work with, and, and leadership is all directions, and always keep that in mind, it's up, down, sideways. Um, try and give people certainty around what it is. It makes life so much easier to figure out which way to go and what to do. Um, fortunately, after that, um, we got that all together and um, in a two-year period, we changed the company from having a 125% combined ratio down to a 98% combined ratio um, with, with a fair bit of loss. We lost about 25% of the business during that period, but it's far better to make um, some money on a smaller business than lose money on a bigger business. Um, the world changed fairly dramatically after that. We had um, in the general insurance world September 11, um, 2001, and that dramatically changed how things were priced in, across the whole world. Um, in particular in Australia, we also had HIH occur at the same, same stage, so um, that, that allowed pricing to go up fairly significantly in QB in Australia. It went from strength to strength after that. Um, I then moved across to London. We had two businesses in our London operation over there and because I'd had some experience in merging businesses together, I said, I'm trying to do it again. Um, so we, that was about uh, a bit over half of QBE was the London operation at the time. So I merged together th those two operations. It was, it, again, it's um, something you have to be... You had to, the London operations are very different to Australian operations. Um, you've got different people, different cultures, different ways of looking at things. So you've got to be able to be adaptable and think about ha how it best operates in, in each of the different areas. In London, we took two years doing over it, whereas in, in Sydney, we did it all in six months. And that's just a cultural difference about how things operate and making sure that you retain what you want to retain through, through the whole process there. So again, it's just planning out what you think is the best course for it all. Um, following that, I came back to Sydney um, and because it had been reasonably successful in, in doing those things previously, I um, was invited to join the group executive for QBE, which was uh, I found a, a fascinating thing to do. Um, at that stage, QBE had also just done a couple of acquisitions in the US, so you had a fairly worldwide insurer. I spent uh, way, way too long on aeroplanes, but did learn a lot in visiting all the different operations of QBE around the world. Um, particularly during the business planning processes and things like that um, and, and therefore monitoring of the business plans etc um, which I found a great education and um, also good to really learn about how to interact with a vast variety of different people which you get in all the different continents around the world. Um, after being in QBE for a while um, I joined Berkshire Hathaway in 2012 um, this was just after well, Berkshire Hathaway's reinsurance division um, initially. Um, they, uh, th they had a lot of business being written in this end of the world, being Southeast Asia, but no office over here. They fundamentally were writing all their reinsurance out of um, London and New York um, and decided to actually get somebody on the ground out in this end of the world. Um, because um, it was taking too much time and effort to spend two-thirds of a year flying over to Asia and flying back again and things like that. So I was fortunate enough to... Uh, be, be one of my roles in QBE, as Nikki said, was um, buying reinsurance. So I knew the reinsurance market quite well. Um, so they got me to look after Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand as far as reinsurance goes for Berkshire Hathaway. Um, I did that for a couple of years and we saw there was a reasonable opportunity for starting up insurance as well in this area of the world. So started up the insurance operations for Berkshire Hathaway in Australia and New Zealand. And as Nikki said, um, we sold the personal lines operation of that to IAG um, a couple of years ago. Um, then worked for Berkshire for a bit longer and then more recently um, decided to do a startup, um, which I've been working on recently. Um, uh, it, it's interesting, again, moving from being in big corporates uh, of various de descriptions, although um, QBE was reasonably decentralised, um, particularly sort of uh, uh, under when Frank O'Halloran was CEO. Um, Berkshire Hathaway is decentralisation on steroids, so um, there is very, very little support of any kind or control of any kind of what people do. So it's a really interesting culture, culture to work in, although a massive organisation. Um, and then uh, moving into a small company of a start-up nature and then, then moving down that sort of pathway again, which I've been doing for the last few months, um, is fascinating as well. Um, 
again, your leadership skills are a completely different set which is needed. I've always ranked leadership into three categories. One part of leadership is um, you've got to lead yourself and figure out what you're doing. Um, and that's the easiest thing to do because normally if you tell yourself to do something, you cooperate and do it. Um, the next, next easiest area is um, when you've got a team reporting to you because um, generally most of your team members will cooperate with you and work with you. The, the third area of sort of leadership is um, trying to lead others who don't report to you. That can be people or other people in the organisation, more senior, more junior or sideways, etc. And trying to influence them to, to get, the, get the outcomes which are needed. Um, so I've always tried to think about leadership in those three different categories as far as trying to make sure that, um, make sure you think about how you're leading and, and that you are actually approaching those three different, different areas. I think I learned a fourth one recently, which was I'm um, going around um, trying to raise capital for a startup, which is trying to get, get people to give me money, um, <laughs> which uh, is a completely different area of leadership at all. But again, you're still trying to convince people to, to follow your idea and do, do what you want to do and, and convince them that, that that's a great sort of, sort of area. So I think, I think I've added that as a fourth area to my thinking as far as um, leadership goes. But the first three are probably the, the main ones to focus on. Oh, very interesting, Blair. There's uh, some interesting messages there with uh, with um, those non-technical skills of courage, backing yourself, and uh, um, taking opportunities and being accountable and responsible, um, and then adaptability. And I'm sure uh, courage is a particularly important one going on your new venture as well. Thank you. Um, Anthony, thanks. Your um, well, just start by talking a little bit about my career. I guess the important, probably the important place to start is I. I didn't grow up thinking I would be Chief Executive of Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. Um, and that's kind of an important theme for me today because I kind of feel like my career's been a bit of a random walk and I don't think that's a problem. I know quite a lot of quite successful people who would say the same thing about their careers. I think when we were studying probability at school, they used to talk about the drunk man's walk, but I'm not sure that we're allowed to say that anymore. So when I was 16, I wanted to be Erwin Schrodinger. And I didn't want to be Erwin Schrodinger because he scandalised 1930s Cambridge by turning up to college with both his wife and his mistress. I wanted to be Erwin Schrodinger because I thought his uh, non-relativistic wave equation was really cool. So I um, got very interested in that, went off, did my degree, did my PhD, as, um, uh, as you said, Nicky. And um, uh, probably the first most important realisation for me, and I think that this is important for everybody actually, is if you want to play in that kind of elite game, you're a sportsman or whatever, you have to understand whether you're up for it or not. And I came to the understanding after seven years at university that I'd been very successful at university, but I just actually hadn't got it to be Erwin Schrodinger or Albert Einstein or anybody like that. So, And I think um, it probably picks up a little bit on a theme of yours, uh, Blair, which is you, you've got to be realistic about yourself. You've got to back yourself, but don't be unrealistic about how you back yourself as well. Um, so I decided to train as an actuary. I went off to our Watson and Sons in London Road, Brigate and trained and did all of that. Came out to Australia and gradually got more sort of sucked up in management things, and that interested me, the leadership uh, of people, but also the ability to sort of control the agenda and all of those kind of things. Um, I 100% agree with what Blair says about positivity. I think that's enormously important. One of the things I've learned in my career is nobody likes, there's two things that people don't, there's more, probably more than two things that people don't like, but they don't like the person who's always kind of bitching at the back going, this isn't going to work because uh, it isn't helpful. And they don't like uh, what, uh, excuse my language, but they don't like what one of my former bosses at, at, at Mercer said, the master of the bleeding obvious, where you go, um, well, of course, this isn't going to work for all the following reasons. Um, you've got to be, I think, you've got to be positive about things, even when you're actually disagreeing with people. You've, you've got to find a way to frame that in a, in a positive way. So I, um, I, uh, I was invited by Mercer to go and work in the US and fix up a defined benefit administration business they had. And I went out and did that for three years, came back to Australia, um, and eventually, as you said, Nikki ran um, uh, Mercer Wealth Solutions, a superannuation and financial planning business. And I came to a point, really, where I thought, well, you know, I enjoy this, but I want to do something else. Um, so I, I decided that I would 
see if I could get a job in the not-for-profit sector. And, um, you know, when you try to make a career change like that, you immediately think to yourself, well, at least I do. Well, who the hell is going to employ me to do that? And how am I going to sell myself in? You're probably thinking a bit like that, trying to raise your capital. How the hell am I going to you know, get these people to give me all their money? Um, and, and so for me, and we might talk about this uh, in a bit, um, it, it's a question of thinking about all those things you've done in the past, that random walk, thinking about all the skills and attributes, so actuarial training, PhD, mathematics background, all the other things I've done, and trying to, and I've done some technology projects when I was at AMP working with Accenture, um, and various other kind of totally random things that bosses of mine said, oh, Anthony, you could do this, that sort of thing, and try to package those together in terms of a sellable proposition. And my conclusion was, even though my aspiration was to be a chief executive of a not-for-profit, uh, the only path to do that was through the business background and persuading people that I could be a chief operating officer. So I was lucky enough to get the job as Chief Operating Officer at National Breast Cancer Foundation and that kind of opened up a path to be um, Chief Executive of Prostate Cancer Foundation in Australia. So uh, I guess that's my journey. Uh, one other thing that just to pick up on some things that they said um, that I think would be interesting to talk about is um, that whole thing about leadership at different levels. So to me, having been a Chief Operating Officer, the leadership that you require is a bit different than the leadership that you require as a chief executive officer. So, um, you know, there's a kind of a good cop, bad cop thing that goes on. I think, Nikki, you might want to talk in a minute about the experience I had shutting the office that I worked in in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, and there are some learnings there. But that's kind of chief operating st officer stuff. You're, you're, you know, the, the expectation of your bosses is that you will be Mr. Efficiency, you know, Mr. Ruthless, Mr. Get It Done, in a sense, Mr. Head Kicker, although I think there are some things about that that I'll talk about in a minute. But being Chief Executive, um, the expectation is you'll be everybody's friend, Mr. Nice Guy, listen to everybody, not shut people out because they're idiots, all of those kind of things. So I think that that's different. And then again, going on to be a non-executive director on, on a board, understanding that that's kind of different again and it does give you a perspective I think of the you know the different roles at different levels um, so the only other thing I wanted to say uh, it picks up on what you suppose um, I think it's very important to kind of have integrity I mean sometimes as leaders I know um, there are a few members of the actual profession Wayne Brazel's one and David Bell although he's not an actuary is another who've had sort of military training and therefore leadership training because apparently they're trained in leadership in the military. Um, and I guess, I don't know, I haven't talked to them about it, but, but that includes leadership in defeat as well as leadership in victory, if you like. So, so how do you lead a group of people through the process of telling them that they've not got any jobs anymore and the office is closing. And I think that that's in very important, the integrity of doing that. Um, because you talked about justifying it to yourself there, and of course that's right. Um, but in the end, I mean, I got put in the position where I got told that's what I got to do. It doesn't matter whether I got to justify it or not. But I think even if that's the instruction you've been given and you've got no way out, it was the right thing to do, by the way, but you've got no way out. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it and a right way to uh, address the dignity of the people who work for you and make sure that you're communicating properly with them all the way through. Anyway. Thanks, Anthony. Um, yeah, listening to your journey, I think it uh, really resonates with one of the um, things that we've discussed about on the Leadership Committee and that is proactively managing your career and, and it, as you're progressing through your career, it sounds like you've very had very considered thought uh, about what you're doing and, and you talk about having realistic um, views of your um, strengths and, and weaknesses. So it's... Uh, I think I'm a bit more opportunistic, to be honest. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Have to be thoughtful as you seize the opportunity, I think is probably what I would say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we might move on to uh, uh, my next question, which uh, if you could give us some um, examples of how you developed your leadership skills, were there, were there any sort of pivotal points where you um, 
felt that that was really uh, useful in developing those skills or were there any people who were inspirational to you? Um, how did you go about leader, developing your leadership skills? Might start with Anthony this time. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I think probably the starting point for me is when I was a student in Cambridge and then in Southampton, I was quite involved in um, student politics and, um, you know, all my mates were involved one way or another and I think that kind of gave me an insight into the process of negotiating with people and trying to influence people and things that you might think, well, it's blindingly obvious we need to do this, um, but you can't actually get it done. Force them to do it. <laughs> yes, well, absolutely. I mean, I think we all, without going into the controversial stuff, I think we all probably reflect on Malcolm Turnbull and go, I think we probably know the sorts of things that he probably wants to do, um, but to be fair to him, he's leader of a party and he's following, you know, the decisions of his party, not his own conscience to a certain extent. So um, there are constraints all the time. So I think that was the, the, the first thing for me. And then I think uh, this might sound um, kind of arrogant. I think it probably is actually. But um, uh, for the first nine years of my career, uh, I didn't report to anybody because I worked for Watsons in the UK and there were all these partners and they were much more important than anybody else. And in fact, if you were a main partner and only partner, you could use a pencil and nobody else was allowed to. Very kind of hierarchical. And it didn't occur to me until I arrived in Australia that it was unusual not to have a line manager. So I had no kind of experience of that until I worked for AMP in the early 90s, uh, early 90s, mid 90s. I actually hadn't had anyone reporting to me. And I think I just thought I got handed this project um, by my then boss at AMP working with Anderson Consulting and he said, off you go and do this. And I kind of thought to myself, how hard can that be? I must be able to do that. Um, and I think it's sort of Blair's point in a way, you've got to back yourself. Um, and you kind of learn on the job, I think. Um, I've not actually found, to be honest, might be controversial, that any of the various leadership training that I've ever been sent on, not that I've been sent on a huge amount, has been hugely helpful, because I think the best advice that I've ever heard from anybody is, you've got to lead in your own style. And, you know, I've had plenty of bosses who have tried to sort of suggest that I'm doing it the wrong way because I'm not doing it like them. Um, but I, that's one thing I refuse to sort of give up on because I just don't think you've got to be authentic, I think. Um, and, and so I think you've just got to kind of follow your own course and try and learn from your mistakes and be thoughtful about what's happening. Okay, thank you. For, for you, it's been probably more than on the job than formalised courses and taking advantage of opportunities. Yes, Blair. Um, as far as sort of developing a style, probably the one of the main characteristics which everyone needs to consider every time something goes wrong is um, being resilient. Um, resilience within yourself uh, and trying to take something which is going wrong as a learning and using it as a base to move forward on is one of the key characteristics I think most leaders need. Um, if you, it's very easy to pick holes in things, but um, it's a lot harder to, to actually figure out how things develop and go the, go the right direction. So um, if you're, again, I'll use the word again, I said I'll use it a few times, be resi re relentlessly resilient, which is a bit hard to say sometimes. Um, uh, just keep on, um, if things go wrong, they go wrong, it's okay, but um, take the positives out of it and really push hard on the positives because that's what's going to make a difference. As far as what um, sort of developed my style, I've had, uh, I think probably the best learnings I've ever had would have been through on-the-job on learnings, if I can put it that way. I really encourage people to try out things, um, do things which are different um, and see if they work. And if they don't work, it really doesn't matter a lot of the time. Just explain to people what's happened and, and tr try something else. Um, but as far as sort of formal training go, I've been through sort of executive MBAs and um, courses on leadership and all that sort of area. 
Um, they, they're useful. The, the discipline I tried to put myself on, because it's really easy to go to a course and then just go back to work and nothing ever changes. Every day I had, a, a, for every day of training I've ever had, I try and implement one change in the office about what I do or my workplace about what I do. If you get one change out of a whole days of training, I reckon you're going really, really well. Um, that's about the, you're lucky to get that sort of ratio. You've got to try really, really hard to do that in my view. So if you are going for any sort of formal training, um, try a, a, and actually do something different that the, sometime within the next week or two. doesn't have to be the next day. Um, it's, as far as development goes, another area which I've always pushed myself really hard on um, is to subscribe to things or talk to people who don't agree with or I don't agree with the way they look at things or the world. Um, it's really easy to surround yourself by things which confirm your, your view of the world. It's a lot more confronting to surround yourself with things which are um, against your view of the world. I subscribe to a number of blogs and things like that where people have, in my view, awful views of the world. Um, but they're things which I like to understand that other people have those other views and things like that. If I just subscribe to things which um, um, have my view of the world, then all I'd do is reinforce my view of the world and I wouldn't learn very much. Um, there's, there's a lot of um, different views out there and talk to people who have different views to do different things. The wider the circle of people you talk to and the more you can learn about different people and different cultures and different ideas, which sounds a bit trite when you say it that way, when at least it sounded trite to me anyway. Um, but do, do get out there uh, and be challenged. It's the challenge and the change which makes the difference and that's where your learning comes from. You don't learn anything from doing the same thing over and over again. Um, I try and lead lots of biographies and, uh, and things like that about different people and what they've done in their lives. Um, I find, besides the fact I find them fascinating, they're often useful learnings and things like that of what people have done. And sometimes you may not take a direct learning out of it, but you will, you will um, somewhere in the back of your mind, um, it sort of grinds away and you'll get something out of it, is my view on it all. Um, there's a, I, I subs my favourite blog I subscribe to, which is probably a reinforcing one rather than a challenging one, um, which I've mentioned to lots of people, um, it's called Leadership Freak. Um, dot blog. Um, it, it sends you like uh, 20 lines a day about different thoughts on leadership. I find it really, really interesting because uh, the way I operate, I can digest 20 lines in a day. If somebody gave me a whole book every day, I'd be in trouble. I'd never be able to do it. Um, so something like that. I don't read them every day. Um, some days you're busy. Um, but it's, it's really well, well written by the guy who does it. So if you're looking for something which um, prompts, prompts people to, or prompts you to think about things and, and they're real, real world problems he's coming across all the time. He's a, he's a trainer in that sort of area and he just blogs out um, really sort of interesting stuff. So that's the, the most useful one I've ever come across as far as trying to get something which, uh, I mean, the way, the way I train seems to be a little bit um, continuously rather than lo lots of bits in a concentration. Um, so th they're probably the, the main things as far as development goes, but I, I, I would encourage everyone to try different things, look at different things, understand different things and different, different ways of looking at things. Um, and, and try them out. Um, things work, things don't work, but it, it allows you to develop your leadership style a lot. And absolutely, as Anthony said, you, it's your leadership style you're trying to develop. You're not trying, you can take learnings from other people, and I always take learnings from other people, um, but you, you're not another person. You are who you are. Um, I always find also mentorships um, really useful. I've always tried to have somebody who I can talk to as far as um, trying to sound out um, good ideas or bad ideas or just complain about the world too or whatever the case may be. That, that's really useful. And I've had different people at different stages. They've sometimes been peers and sometimes they've been people who have been senior to me and things like that. Um, but I, I find that uh, a good sort of uh, area just to have a chat about um, seeing if what, what I want to try is reasonable or not reasonable. And uh, um, the Institute has a, I think they still do, do they, they still do, um, yes, yeah. Yeah, uh, is, one, is one source, but I mean, if you've got a good mate, that's as good as much as anyone else, because really the, the act of talking to someone about what, what it is actually makes it clear about um, what you want to do. Um, the fact you have to express it and you get your thoughts straight 
um, often makes, makes the answer pretty clear afterwards. So um, some sort of mentor or person you can talk to about what you're doing and where it's going who's not in your organisation, I'd, I'd encourage you to have someone who's a little bit sort of um, dispassionate or out in a different area is, is a really useful sort of um, tool as well. Oh, thank you, Maria. Some really interesting points there. Um, particularly interesting how you've gone about having, um, I guess, diversity of thought for your own for your own um, self. Um, and I, I just wanted to maybe uh, draw that out a little bit more because diversity is very much a, a topical issue at the moment. Um, and you talked very much about personal diversity. I guess there's also diversity um, within teams and the advantages of, of that. And um, uh, I know, Anthony, you had some views on, on that, so maybe we'll start with you and then if Blair's got more, he's going to... Yes, I might just pick up on um, Blair's point first, which is, um, so I, I think in terms of diversity of opinion, there's a couple of things. Um, Winston Churchill once said, if you want to know what's going on, you should read The Daily Worker and The Financial Times, you know, from the two opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think that's pretty good advice, actually. Um, so there's that. But the other thing is diversity of professional opinion. I mean, we are actuaries and we have a certain way of looking at problems, an actuarial way of looking at problems. I think it's important for us to all aware that different professions see different problems quite differently. So I work with um, clinicians, for example, surgeons and radiation oncologists and medical oncologists and epidemiologists and um, psychologists and so on. And the, the interesting thing is that a lot of those professions use parts, if not, you know, all of the core stuff that we think of as sort of actuarial, so the probabilities and all of those sorts of things. Um, but they don't necessarily see it quite the same way. And I think, you know, to the point about leading a diverse group of people, it's important to understand how an IT professional is going to look at the world one way compared to a creative director in an advertising agency. So I think those things are important. But to pick up on the diversity point, and I'm glad you raised it because I was, as I came in, I was looking at the wall over there and those august presidents of the Institute of Actuaries of Australia and noticing there were exactly five women on the board and three of them uh, have been presidents in the last 10 years. So Cathy Prime appears to be the first, followed by Helen Martin, and Cathy uh, must have been a real pioneer. Um, and I kind of look at the ethnic diversity of the blokes, and I think that maybe they share some things in common. So, and I think you know that's really important as a profession um, that we promote diversity. I mean, we live in a, a multicultural, diverse country. Um, I think it's important that we embrace that and, and promote that in leadership. And it gives a diversity of opinion in teams, which my understanding of the research, at least, it's certainly my experience, actually is beneficial. I mean, people talk a lot on boards, for example, where you really screw things up quite badly is where excuse for being a bit crude about this, but all the blokes on the, the old white blokes on the board all agree that it's all, obviously the answer is the following. And what they miss is the other perspectives because they've all come from the same background and so they all think the same way and so they all come to the same conclusion. And particularly, um, people have talked about the benefits of gender diversity on boards. Um, I went to a talk given recently by the Chancellor of the University of Melbourne and he was talking about not-for-profit boards primarily, but he said, you know, you also need to think about ethnic diversity. If you've got a board, and I think it doesn't just apply to boards, you need to make sure you've got somebody from a Chinese background or, a, you know, one of the Vietnamese background, one of the main multi, larger multicultural groups in Australia. I think that's incredibly important. And I think, you know, as it's important as leaders that we show leadership in that regard. It's, yeah, absolutely, because, um, and, and age as well, because different people think about things different way, ways, but the one trap which people fall into sometimes, which is worthwhile thinking about, is tokenism as well. You don't want somebody there just because they've got only one leg and they come from some ethnic background, they've got some age profile or something like that. It's important to have them there because they can add value and they, they're happy to speak up and... Um, and make their views known and um, participate in the whole process there. So the, the, the whole sort of diversity debate 
sometimes gets confused when, when people, especially if I can go to what you said, a bunch of old white males, um, pick someone just because you want someone of that sort of diversity there. Yes. So it's really, really important that, um, that, that each of the different um, characters on boards um, do, add, do add that value. And it's really important for leaders to try and Another way of saying what I was saying earlier is participate in things which, which different, try and understand what different um, ethnic groups, ages, sexes, etc. are doing. Um, and if you can, participate in those types of things as well because that will give you the experience about what they're looking at in a small element. Um, you'll never fully understand, but it gives, you, it gives you a small element there so that you can try and understand why it's important to have, have diversity there because you will see there's so many different, different opinions and different ways of looking at things. Yeah, and I think um, that uh, thinking differently and being challenged for your thoughts is becoming more and more um, necessary. We're living, we're living in a world that's changing rapidly. If we only have to look at our traditional lines with general insurance, with um, you know, emerging technologies and new risks, or in health insurance with uh, the complexity of the products um, and the whole data analytics explosion that we've had, um, there's lots of change. Um, so I guess that quite neatly leads into my next question. So with all this change that's happening around us, uh, how do we as actuaries stay relevant and um, add value from a, from a skill-based perspective? Yep, go, go. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's interesting that people talk about explosions and data and things like that. Actuaries have been dealing this sort of stuff for, forever. I think it's actually a core skill of actuaries in the way um, they look at data uh, and utilise it, etc. Um, it's one of, the, one of those sort of trainings which a lot of people are catching up to. And if you find, if you look at the financial services, particularly insurance and areas where actuaries have had a big um, influence over the years, there's been a lot of big data analysed for a long, long period of time. A lot of the talk about the explosion in big data relates to industries um, which have never even looked at analytics before and um, uh, um, there's some good examples there's, uh, of actuarial firms who have got into these areas where um, there's been less analytics done historically and they've added huge value. Um, I mean Quantum, I mean Tatafry, I don't know which other ones particularly, I know those two in particular have got into big data in industries outside the traditional insurance sort of industries and added massive value there. So what actuaries need to do is realise that data scientists are doing very similar work to what actuaries do a lot of the time anyway, maybe slightly more statistical uh, uh, um, around than a lot of actuaries have traditionally trained to be. Um, the, the profession's got a question to ask about how do we actually sell the skill sets we have currently. Um, just because we're not called data scientists, maybe if we all called ourselves data scientists, we'd be more marketable. <laughs> but you might lose the identity then of actuaries. So um, the actual core skill set there, I, I think, is, is quite strong. Um, and people um, need to make sure that they sort of understand what those different areas are doing. Um, I, I, for instance, I wanted to understand what data scientists were doing. So. Um, the, the, the Institute of Actuaries kindly had a circular from some open university recently about a course which was all about data science. So I enrolled myself in it and read, read the course material. I didn't actually do the course, but I just want to understand what sort of material they're covering, um, which actually reinforced my view that actuaries and data scientists are actually very, very similar in what they're doing. They're trying to manage large amounts of data and take very... Uh, take opinions out of it which can be used in the business. I think actuaries have one extra skill set which really sets them aside from a lot of data scientists which is pushed really heavily in the educational aspect which is the judgment element which I don't think you necessarily get in so many other areas and I think that's a huge value add which um, needs to be pushed, uh, which can be pushed by the institute to, to go that direction um, just on that sort of subject. Um, I guess if we um, maybe just put the uh, data analytics to aside, I guess I was thinking um, our training uh, provides us with some really great skills, obviously our numeracy skills, our ability to think um, sort of at a higher holistic level, um, our ability to take into account risk. Um, to be 
more relevant and more valuable. Uh, um, I would think it, it would be useful to couple those strong skills that we have with um, ability to collaborate with other professionals who can give, so if it's you know in climate change, some, an expert in climate change to bring those skill sets together um, to then influence policy makers. So, so it's some of those soft skills I think um, would be uh, make you a more valuable um, to the profession, to businesses um, and to the community. Anthony, do you have some views on that? Uh, well, I think that that's right. I pick up on Blair's point. I think judgment is the thing. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of data, an awful lot of, um, you know, big data and stuff like that. I've heard a number of uh, senior marketing people at a number of large sort of retail operations in Australia talking about, for example, their rewards program and how fantastic it is and all the analysis they do and all that kind of stuff. And then you take out one of their cards and they just bombard you with crap every week for stuff and you just think there's no data, data actually analysis really going on here. I think our, our core skill in a way is the ability to kind of look at the data and think through to the solution and, and apply judgment and also to be able to, you know, what is a what is a reasonable answer? Why is it a reasonable answer? And what's the likely variation around that? So, I mean, when I started at our Watson & Sons in 1987, uh, we were still doing things on big square pieces of paper and we were taught to do evaluation in lots of different coloured biros using factors and all of that kind of stuff. And in a sense, what the firm had built up was an expertise in doing calculations on big amounts of data in an era when there were no computers. So they used to do the post office valuation, uh, superannuation scheme valuation, doing what they called the B sample. So they worked out that if you did all the people whose surnames again with B and ratioed up, you got a good answer. Um, and some senior partner had some reason why B was the right letter of the alphabet. I can't remember now. Um, but, you know, I think we've kind of got to forget that in a way. We've got to move on from that because that's all fine, those skills, and they were barely applicable in 1987. But I remember at one point they said, we're going to have computers on everybody's desks, personal computers, but it's going to take five years because they're very expensive, you know, and in about 12 months everybody had a personal computer on their desk because the world just changed so fast. So I think what we've, what we've got to focus on is, is the fundamentals um, which are those judgment and so on. But I, I agree with you entirely. I mean, kind of get out there more. That's that's one of my themes. So um, collaborate with other professionals. So I had an interesting conversation on Friday with a very senior epidemiologist who's trying to solve, um, he's trying to provide some advice on this toxic foam stuff to a government thing. And he actually had quite a simple probability question, but he couldn't figure it out. Um, and he said, oh, Anthony, you've got a maths degree, you must be able to do this. And I was pleased as punch to be able to give him the answer. That's a small point, but I think those kind of collaborations where you can bring our perspective but not be exclusive about it are, are very important because we do as a profession have a lot to offer, but you know, there's a lot of competition between professions uh, at the moment. Uh, so, for example, we do quite a lot of work in exercise for people with cancer, um, and, the, you know, you've got your personal trainers, you've got your um, uh, physiotherapists and you've got your exercise physiologists. And I won't go into the difference between all of those. But they're really butting up against each other, trying to explain to everybody why they're like fundamentally different professions. And I think that's a, that's a nothing game, really. I think what we have to do is, you know, get out there and use our skills and work with other people. Um, so, you know, economists and epidemiologists, if you're in that space, psychotherapy, uh, uh, psychologists, all those kind of people, whoever it is that you work with, the lawyers, the accountants, whatever. I mean, accountants are interesting. They seem to see the world in a quite odd way to me, but there you go. Um, but that, that's their way of doing things, right? And I think we need to, but we do need to collaborate with other professions, yes. I've got many more questions for you, but I better let the uh, audience have some time to ask some questions. Um, I have got one that's come through on the webinar from Richard Carter. Uh, why do you believe, sorry, what do you believe are the key differences between leadership and management? Maybe it's just one of you. Blair, do you want to answer that one? Uh, the, 
The, the ability to probably encourage and inspire people's leadership, management's telling people what to do, um, would be the way I, I'd view the two differences. Managing people is sort of a day-to-day -day type of, we've got 300 things we need to do, here's the top 50 we need to get sorted and let's try and do these in the next week or so. Whereas leadership is trying to um, get them to take responsibility for things rather than you telling people what to do. Telling people what to do is not leadership in my view. Um, the, the, the skill to do that is, is something you'll learn over time and I think it leads back to a number of things we've discussed. Different people get led different ways and you've got to figure out what the key points are to inspire some people uh, and it is different between different people but you need to give them enough inspiration and also an, enough room to, for them to own the problem, not you own the problem. And you have to be able to, um, especially for actuaries, we've got a lot of training in, in technical areas and things like that. The easiest thing is to tell someone what to do, how to solve the problem. That's not leadership, that's management. Leadership is giving someone the problem and saying, can you bring me the solution? And um, if you're in trouble, come and talk to me. Um, so letting them own the problem. And that applies to sort of any area. Um, where you, you're trying to get someone else to um, take responsibility for things and, and run through there. So uh, I, I call it empowering people. You've got to empower them to um, surprise you. And you, you, I get surprised continuously how many people surprise me um, in actually doing far more than I ever expect. Because if you give them the room to do it, they'll do it. They'll take the responsibility and they'll do a far better job than you'll ever expect them to do. But the thing you have to do after that, when they come back with the solution, recognise them. They're the, they're the people who've got the solution. You should be the one um, there saying what a great job they've done, giving them the accolades. So there, there, there's definitely leaders around who then want to take the accolades for what's been achieved, etc. The best way to in, that, that's the best way to discourage people ever doing anything again for you. The best way to encourage them is that they've solved the problem. Um, give them the accolades. Make sure that everybody else knows that that person solved the problem. Because then you'll not only inspire that that, that individual, you'll actually inspire all other individuals to try and achieve things on their own and, and make things work, etc. So the more humble you are around other people's achievements, the better, I, I would say. Um, so that comes down to uh, really do you understand emotionally what other people are feeling? So people generally turn that EQ, emotional intelligence. Um, actuaries all have lots, lots and lots of IQ because you wouldn't have got through the exams otherwise. But just making sure that you really focus on um, understanding what other people feel and what their feelings are about things because it does change a lot. Um, and, um, by, by people and often due to how you view the world you'll end up in different professions etc. So understanding and trying to think about what motivates people um, down, down that sort of pathway is really important. And um, just walking around and, and talking to people, other areas of the companies you work for or clients or depends what the organisation it is, just make sure you get out there and talk to people and find out what's, re what's really um, happening and that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a senior manager and going around and sort of talking to the troops or something like that. Any, everyone should be out there talking to all their colleagues etc because that's really what you find out um, where, where things are going. So just keep in mind, encourage and inspire people, let people run with problems and sort, that out, sort them out themselves and they'll produce the best answers for you and they will nearly always surprise you about what they can do. Oh, great, thanks, Blaine. Do we have, we've got a roaming mic with a webinar. We're just going to try and get people to speak through the mic. Is, uh, any other questions? Yes, down the front. Hi, Ambassador Morris from Deloitte. Uh, just had a quick question about you know, we often hear about leaders having a vision, kind of you know, delivering on that vision. I'd be interested to hear from both of you the process you go through, firstly, to come up with a vision, and secondly, to test whether that's the right vision, and then to get buy-in from people to follow that vision. I think that's a, a really great question. I was sort of thinking I might jump in at the end of what Blair said, all of which I agree with, and say that I think that that strategy and the direction of the organisation is an important part of leadership. So, um, you know, you take over as chief executive of something or you take over a department, whatever, and, and it never quite happens like this. But if somebody says to you, well, um, you can do anything you want, what are you going to do? Um, 
it's kind of a sort of a scary question in a way because you spend most of your life basically doing what you're told by other people. So I think that's a very important component of leadership. In terms of um, how I work it for myself and my own organisation, first of all, I think it needs to be a collaborative process. So um, as you set a vision for an organisation, you have to work with people and bring them along and get their ideas, in my opinion. So it's kind of a workshop process. In fact, um, at my organisation, Martin Mulcare is actually helping us go through a process of that sort at the moment. Um, just to realign our strategy going forward. Um, but I think you, you, know, you need to do your homework, you need to think about the organisation, you need to think about the industry you're in, and you basically need to formulate your own opinion, I think, and to Blair's point, you kind of need to back yourself. And, and it's complicated. I mean, in my position, I've got to get my board to agree that I'm right, um, because I can't, do, I can't do what I think we ought to do without getting the approval of the board. And you've got to get the people who, who work in our executive team to follow us. And then you've got to, I often think about it, you know, when we were kids in a physics thing, you've got these iron filings and you put them on the train, you put the magnet underneath and all of a sudden they align up. And that's what you've got to get. You've got to go get the whole organisation lined up those iron filings. So uh, it's an iterative process. Um, and I think one thing I would say, I think you've got to write it down. So... Um, one of the things that I found in my life, uh, not just in leadership, but you think you know what you're doing until you try and put it on a piece of paper and then you go, oh crap, I didn't really think that through quite well. So um, I think it's a process of, um, so I'll tell you the process we're going through. I have developed some notes on what I think we should do in the next five years. I've shared that with our executive team. I've shared it with our chairman and deputy chairman. We're going through this facilitated process with Martin. We're going to have a He's talked to a load of my executives. Um, we're going to have a workshop. We're going to talk that all through. Hopefully we're going to land somewhere and then we're going to write it up, share it, iterate it, so that we get to a position where everybody understands where we expect to be in the next five years. And, and more importantly, everybody understands the part that they play and the part that other people play. So one of the things that happens, it must just be something about human beings, is people kind of break off into teams. So I've got a fundraising team and a, you know, a support and awareness community outreach team and a research team and so on. And before you know it, everybody's in their silos, only thinking about their own thing. The great thing is everybody fighting for real estate on the website. The fundraising people are going, well, we won't be able to raise any money unless we have the whole front page of the website because that's what we need to do to raise all the money. And so to make sure that everybody understands that it's a collaborative effort, it's a team effort with different skills, different perspectives on the whole thing, um, and that they've kind of got mutual respect and understanding for the different parts that different people are playing. That's what I would say. Um, yeah, uh, I absolutely agree. They're getting the whole team involved in, in coming up with the direction. Now sometimes sometimes you may have 90% of the idea about what you want, but it is important to bring the, the team along during the exercise. Um, coming up with a vision depends on where you are and what you're doing. If you're a prostate cancer foundation, cancer foundation um, charity, then it does define somewhat what your vision can be. Um, it has to be in that direction or else if you, if you do something completely different, your um, people backing you will probably get upset. Um, it's been interesting as well with um, myself recently with the ability to sort of uh, think a bit more widely on what, what I can do. Um, a lot of that then comes down to you and the people you're working with being passionate about it. You've you got to do something you're passionate about. If you're not passionate about it, don't bother. Go and do something else. Um, so that will drive your vision a lot is the passion. So once you've got that passion, if you can espouse it and write it down, as you said, which is really useful, everyone else will pick up on it because if you're that passionate about it, then um, others will follow it because it just makes so much sense if you really believe in it. So um, be, do something which you're passionate about. If you're not passionate about your job, I, 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 my best career advice I've ever given to people is always go and do something else. Um, you've got to really enjoy what you're doing. You spend way too much time at work to not enjoy it. So um, that applies to coming up with a vision for a company or, or, or whatever you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, um, etc. So re really love it. And when you love it, you'll do it so well that you'll always exceed um, expectations. Just to add to that, and this has certainly happened to me, 
if you work through it all and you work out what you need to do and you go to your boss and your boss says, no, we're not doing that, sorry, that's not what we do around here, then you're probably in the wrong place because, um, you know, you do find yourself in situations in your career where the organisation just will not do the obvious right thing for whatever reason. Those are those constraints, you know, it's, it's the legacy of the organisation or it's other regulatory barriers or whatever it happens to be or just plain pig-headedness, who knows. But uh, um, I, I think you do have to sometimes say to yourself, look, this organisation, you know, not all, all organisations are successful and sometimes organisations kind of collectively do the lemming thing and, and jump over the cliff. Uh, and so if you're convinced that the organisation you work for is sort of going in the wrong direction and you really can't stand that, I think it's time to look for something else, to be honest. Um, as Blair says, you know, I mean, you've only got one life, one career. Might as well do something you enjoy, so you're passionate about. Okay, we've probably got time for another question. Thank you. Uh, Kate Lyons at Suncorp. It's, thanks for the talk today. It's been really fascinating to hear your experiences. Um, you touched earlier on some of the hard decisions you had to make with restructuring or closing down offices. And now we're getting onto the do what you enjoy, what you're passionate about. What is it that you really enjoy and are passionate about as leaders? Um, for, for me, what I really enjoy is um, creating things, um, making things change, moving them forward. I'm really bad at doing things and structuring things and compliance and that sort of area. So I concentrate on doing the things I'm really good at and try and employ people to do the things I'm really bad at, um, which should apply to any, any job really. Um, and that way, is if what, you try, what I try and do is be as aware as possible of the bits I'm really bad at. I ask people what I'm really bad at and try and get people to tell me. Most people hate telling you what you're bad at because most people don't like relaying criticism. Um, and if uh, over time you might get a theme of things which you're good at and a theme of things which you're bad at. Generally the things you're bad at is because you hate them um, and the things you're good at is because you love them. So do, do more of that and less of the other and try and back yourself up with other people who are really good at doing those types of things as a, a way of, of getting to that sort of outcome. Fixing things up is the answer in my case. So uh, I've spent a lot of my career taking things that weren't necessarily broken or I've taken on some things that were pretty close to and making them work to my satisfaction, I suppose, or, or function properly. So that's what I really enjoy. I think just on that, if anybody is in the, uh, had got a similar sort of view on life, I think the trick uh, when you take on something that you think, you know, this looks pretty broken, but I think you can fix it up, is to think carefully whether you actually can fix it up or not. I think what you've got to be careful to do, uh, I've turned down some things in my career where I, my estimation was there isn't the political will, if you like, or the organisational will to fix the problem. So if I take this, I'm only doomed to failure, and I think that's probably would be the most miserable place to be. I think what you've got to do is... Uh, but if you, for me anyway, if you can take something which you think, look, this could be a whole lot better. I can see it could be a whole lot better. You know, we could be spending less money. We could be doing more great things. We could be, in my case, all of this benefits the community. That's really what drives me. Any other questions? Yes, down the front. Hi, I'm Daniel um, from QBE. Uh, thanks for your talk today. It's been quite uh, insightful. Um, so I've got a question um, in relation to, I guess, um, resilience. Um, I heard that resilience is a common theme in terms of how important it is to sort of back yourself. Um, but uh, there are times where too much resilience might be a setback. Maybe perhaps um, um, you're too stubborn in certain views. And have you ever sort of experience that and how you how you might sort of let back sometimes and admit that you might not always be right? Um, I, I don't think of resilience necessarily as stubbornness. That's more, I, I think stubbornness, the way I, I relate to things and everyone's different, 
Um, I, I think a stubbornness is more of making a decision and then stubbornly pushing on with that in spite of everybody else in the whole organisation telling you it's wrong. Occasionally you might be right, but if everybody's telling you it's not the right way to go, you better listen a bit. Um, resilience is more when things have gone wrong, um, being able to pick yourself up and um, say, hey, that happened, it's gone, I can't change the past, uh, it's messed up greatly or whatever the case may be, but there's a lot of good things in the future to do rather than sort of um, worrying about the fact that it's all gone wrong. You can, you want, you can never change the past, it's happened. Um, so you should always look at everything about what you, what you can do now as far as the moment goes and what the opportunities are moving forward. So you might have started a project and you've spent umpteen million dollars doing it and, and trying to make it work and everything else and then suddenly something new comes along. Just because you've sunk millions of dollars into a project doesn't mean it's the best answer from now moving forward. There might be a better way to go. So don't anchor yourself to the past. Resilience is about trying to move forward to the future and, when, and particularly I look at it from when are things go wrong perspective, being able to not take that as such a big setback that you can't sort of look forward to the future and make it work better. So it's having that positive aspect uh, to, to life, and the, which is really a general type of thing. Right? Um, life's work and work's life. Um, to a large extent, does interact a lot nowadays. Um, so just push, pushing that way to be resilient um, and... Also in respect to, I mean, sometimes you get criticised and things like that for what you've done. Again, be resilient to that. Um, try and take the positive out of it because there's always a positive in most criticisms. Um, it's hard to do at times, but try, if you can try that direction, it'll be a lot better off than if you just take it to heart and give up. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, resilience and stubbornness are different things. So resilience to me is... You know, either the ability to bounce back or keep going. So in addition to what Blair said, I think just the ability to kind of put one foot in front of another in difficult times. So to give an example, for example, Alan Joyce and Qantas, when it came to that impasse and shut down the airline when I was sat on the tarmac at 5pm in Melbourne, um, <coughs> you know, that must have been an extraordinarily tough time for him. He was under an enormous amount of pressure um, Goodness knows what his chairman was saying to him, but we know what the media and the politicians were saying to him. But his ability just to, you know, just go, I've got to work my way through this um, and just keep going because, I mean, he just kept going and guess what? He's now one of the most kind of um, successful and popular CEOs in Australia. He could just have gone, this is all too hard, you know, I give up at this point. It's just the ability sometimes just to kind of keep going. Um, and sometimes you kind of got go, keep going through situations that you know are not ideal. I'm sure Ian Narev is sort of sitting there today thinking about the sorts of things that are going on with the Commonwealth Bank, and I don't know anything about them, but I know what I've read in the press, and he's probably going, this isn't ideal, and he might be going, uh, maybe the bank didn't exactly do the right thing, I don't know, um, but, but he's a chief executive, he can't you know, he needs to decide what to do and how to play it and how to move forward and not to let everybody down and kind of keep going in the best way that he possibly can. So that's resilience to me. Probably time for one last question. All done. Well, it's lots of uh, really useful insights. Thank you, Blair and um, Anthony. If everyone could just join me in thanking them for their time today. Thank you. Thank you.